Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you would, please stand with me to read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew 5, 43 through 48, verses 43 to 48. I know I keep reminding us of this every week, but this, these are Jesus' words. This is what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that it's from you, and we acknowledge that we do not always understand what you have to say. And we ask, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things. Open our hearts to receive what you have for us today, and we will thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most people have enemies. People who are opposed to them. People that hate them. As Dallas Willard said, few of us manage to go through life without collecting a group of individuals who would not be sorry to hear that we have died. The temptation when dealing with with or even thinking about such people is to hate them back. Bear a grudge against them for what they did to us. It's tough. Today, we come to the central and probably most famous section of the Sermon on the Mount. And even people who don't believe the Bible know that Jesus said, love your enemies. The fundamental issue, the fundamental uh, problem, the primary problem in Jesus' day and in ours as well is that of mixing truth and error and falsehood all together into one jumbled mess. Sometimes we get it right, sometimes we get it wrong, and sometimes we just make things up. We all do that. The outwardly religious people of Jesus' day did that. It's kind of sad, but sometimes we, we miss the true life Jesus offers because we're so caught up trying to keep up appearances. Like hamsters on a spinning wheel going nowhere, making no progress. And then there's the other thing, that we live in a culture where people have been conditioned to think secularly, to take God out of the picture, trained to leave him out and so in that context and to those who do that the bible doesn't make any sense they're like i don't know what it means and they walk away 
Which is why, as those who, who believe Jesus, need, we need our minds renewed uh, by the Word of God, by the transforming Word of God. Without it, what happens is you get a watered-down misrepresentation of the real thing, a shadow, sometimes even the opposite. And that is what, is hap- that's what happened in first century Judaism. It happens today as well. See, the Sermon on the Mount brings us face to face with the fact that we need God's wisdom. We cannot do without God's wisdom, and without God's wisdom, we, we run astray. We cannot bluff our way through Jesus' commands. We don't have everything wired. We don't have all the answers. But we do know that God knows everything. And we need a word from Him. See, the Sermon on the Mount is the ultimate word from Jesus. It's chock full of uh, paradigm-smashing insights and penetrating truth and seemingly impossible expectations. Love your enemies? Come on. What's all that about? Supposed to hate them, right? Jesus expects his followers to be different. Expects his followers to be different, changed because of their relationship to him. We know that. Influential in the world, salt, to flavor and arrest decay in society. Light to purify and to show the way. And beginning, we've been going through this, beginning in in Matthew 5.20, continuing all the way through the end of today's passage in verse 48, where we end chapter 5. And next week we'll be going on into chapter 6. We are really, really making progress, aren't we? And what, what we see here is that Jesus has laid down the truth in contrast to the error that had been forced upon the people in the context of the sticky relational issues of of his day and of ours. We deal with the same stuff. Anger that leads to and is the equivalent of murder. Broken relationships that need healing, that need putting back together, that need reconciliation. Lust and adultery in our hearts and in our lives. Marriage and, and the fallout of broken vows that often leads to divorce. Telling the truth no matter what. Being people of our word. Avoiding the retaliation trap. And then, loving one's enemies. That's the sixth and last of Jesus' contrast between what the scribes and Pharisees taught and what God's word actually said and meant. And these are tough sayings. You think about that idea of telling the truth no matter what. Well, I would have lied to save the Jews. And taken my lumps. Jesus, Jesus lays down these ideas. And, and, you know, last week we addressed the desire for revenge. To get back, to, to, to pay back. And then what Jesus had to say about our response to mistreatment. What it ought to be. Well, today, no less difficult, even probably you could say more difficult of a request, not just to love the ones that love you and treat you well, 
but to love the ones that hate you and mistreat you as well. Look at verse 43. Matthew 5 and verse 43. Jesus once again begins uh, the section and says, you have heard that it was said. You've been taught this. It's ingrained in your thinking. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Now first, let's see how they got it right. How'd they get it right? Well, what God taught was that you were to love your neighbor. That that was right. Love for all people regardless. Um, And who's your neighbor? Your neighbor's everyone, all human beings. Not just the person that lives on the left or right of you or behind your place of residence or the person that is in your uh, ideology or club or whatever you want to say. It's everyone. Leviticus 19 and verse 18 says this, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And it's talking about people within the community. Then you go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33, and it's talking about uh, strangers that live among you. It says this, When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And there's this empathy connection. It says, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. God's speaking. He says, treat them all the same. Love them all. And that was one of the central truths of the Old Testament. One of the central teachings in the Old Testament. Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, he was, he was tested by the Pharisees on what the greatest commandment was. And what did he answer? Uh, Matthew 22, uh, 30, 36 uh, through 40. The question is, teacher, which, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This, the greatest and foremost commandment, nothing higher than that. The second is like it. He adds the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because it's connected to loving God. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. It's all summed up right there. Treat people like you want to be treated. So that's how they got it right. They, they were able to uh, accurately say, uh, love your neighbor. Okay. Well, how'd they get it wrong? What was their error? Well, they left something out. They left out the wording, as yourself. And ignoring the fact that in Leviticus 19, which we just read, it instructs love of the same depth for the the alien, the sojourner, uh, the resident alien living in your land. We can apply that in Southern California, can't we? Neighbor equals fellow humans. Israelites, though, said it only applies to our countrymen, only those who are of us. Now, Jesus corrected that in narrow interpretation in Luke chapter 10. You know, everyone knows this one, this, the, good, the, the, the story of the Samaritan that did what no one else was willing to do. Luke 10. And again, it kind of, 
this, this all stemmed out of someone standing up and trying to test Jesus. The question came to him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus said, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And the man answered back, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And, and then Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Just do that. Do what you just said. Well, the man wanted to justify himself, and so he said to Jesus, and, and by the way, who is my neighbor? Who is that? And so Jesus replies with the story of this, this man who goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and left him half dead. By chance, a priest was going by. Well, he should know what to do, right? Well, he goes by, he passed by on the other side of the road, doesn't want to even go near the unclean Samaritan. Excuse me, the, un, the, uh, the man, excuse me, the man that had been beaten. Uh, but the Samaritan, the unclean Samaritan, he was on a journey. He came upon him and saw him and felt compassion for him. So you've got a priest and a Levite. Two, two people pass him by. Well, the Samaritan feels compassion. He shows mercy and, and helps him and takes care of him. He even pays and, and, and puts him up for, until he recovers. But Jesus shows how far the neighbor illustration category goes the Samaritan willing to do what others should have been willing to do but they got this error they left out as yourself which is connected to the whole idea of showing compassion but there was a third aspect to this that was even more uh, more evil really it's because they, what, they made something up they brought up a, a total falsehood error is one thing okay? we make errors but falsehood bold faced Man added something. They added something. The words hate your enemy were added. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say to do that. How dangerous it is to try and take God's word and make it say what we want it to say, to validate our preferences, to adapt it to our lifestyle rather than aligning ourselves with God and allowing it to make us what God intends, to allow God's word to do in us what God wants it to do. We're called in 2 Timothy 2.15 to, to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen that rightly uh, divide the word of truth. No need to be ashamed there because we are rightly dividing the word of truth, handling it accurately, not flippantly. We see in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that God's word really does some great stuff. <laughs> But in verse 13, it says that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, he says, however, Paul to Timothy, you continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them. What did he become convinced of? Well, it says that from childhood you've known the sacred writings, that's the scriptures, the Bible, God's word, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And there we have those words, all scriptures inspired by God. God breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, what they did is they made up a total falsehood. See, God's word is able to make us wise unto salvation, to change our lives. God's word strengthens us. Man's perversion of God's word, man's twisting of scripture weakens and destroys We've seen it happen. We've heard about it. Now, sometimes we've even experienced it in our own lives. 
Well, let's give them the benefit of a doubt. Let's say, hey, well, maybe they made a, just an honest error about the hate your enemy thing. That, that's, a, that's a possibility in, in some realm here. Let's just say this, that you know that Moses, what Moses instructed the people to do was to assist an enemy in need. Okay, assist an enemy in need. You see it in Exodus 23. But why would they teach to hate the enemy then if they've been instructed elsewhere to help the enemy? Well, let's take, give them the benefit of a doubt. Go with me to Deuteronomy 23. It's a stretch. But maybe, maybe they, they read Deuteronomy 23. <laughs> Not with the verses that we're put in later, but three through six, let's say, the, not the numbering, you know, but they were reading through God's word and came to this section, um, and here's what it says. It says, it says, no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, none of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pithor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. Could it be? Could it be? It's a stretch. It's also possible that they, that they took the Israelite wars against the Canaanites and the, the Psalms that are called imprecatory Psalms Psalms which contain prayers or desire or requests for God to rain down judgment on one's enemies. Maybe they took that as their reason. But if so, it just showed that they totally misunderstood those things. Both the wars against the Canaanites and the the imprecatory psalms. The psalms that ask God to rain down judgment on adversaries. Bonhoeffer called the wars of Israel, by the way, the only holy wars in in history because they were wars of God against the world of idols. Uh, With regard to certain psalms, go with me to Psalm 26. Now, with regard to certain psalms, uh, the psalmist, we've got to remember this, doesn't speak with personal animosity. But as a representative of God's people, Writing songs to, that would be utilized even in, the, in, in worship of God. But he sees the enemies of God as his enemies. Why? Because he had totally identified with God's program. He totally identified with what God was doing. Look at Psalm 26 and, and um, verse 4. You know, he, he had already asked in verse 2, Examine me, O Lord, try me. Test my mind and my heart. He's opening himself up to God. He's not trying to hide anything. And he says, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate, ooh, there's that word. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar, O Lord. Wow, what do you, what do, you do with that, you know? And then what about Psalm 139? How about one, one, Psalm, this, is, this is even stronger. Psalm 139, verse 19. You almost have to wear gloves when you read this. It, it's, it's, uh, 
you, you know, it's not comforting. It's not comfy. It's not uh, one of those verses that we use as our memory verses. I don't think any kids in Awana had this as a memory verse this year. Kids, let us know. Uh, here it is. Psalm 139, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you, God, wickedly. And your enemies take your name in vain. There you go. He's siding with God. He is, he is uh, identifying with God's program. But then he says this. Do, not, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. Wow. They have become my enemies. That's tough, isn't it? Utmost hatred. His enemies. But, but right after this, he prays with confidence. Look at verse 23 and 24. We, we started the service with these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Some might take that to mean that he was backtracking. <laughs> I don't think so. I think he was confidently praying to God. Not pridefully, but humbly. See, there was a place for righteous anger. There was a place for the perfect hatred. We can't even, we can't even fathom this, but perfect hatred that God had for his enemies that had none of the sinful vengeance that we know so well. Free of all spite. Free of all desire for revenge. But what happened? Israel's religious leaders took God's instructions to love neighbors and some of these, maybe some of these other ideas that were out there and, 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 and didn't understand them and used that as permission to hate enemies. With personal vengeance. With personal desire for revenge. Not sincere. Jesus called them blind guides. Evil men and imposters would be the category they reside in. They taught that God had a double standard, one for the, one for the neighbor and one for the enemy. Do you know the Romans actually accused the Jews of hating the human race? They were not known for their love, but their hate. Sadly, the Christian church today is often known for the same thing. Many see the church as one of the most unloving places around. Well, Jesus gives the perfect solution. Jesus gives the perfect answer to the misuse of Scripture and the hatred of enemies. And you see it in verse 44. Matthew five forty-four. But... I say to you, love your enemies. They said hate, I say love. Polar opposites, by the way. I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You're called to love enemies actively and to pray for them consistently. Martin Luther King said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. 1 Peter 2, Jesus did not utter threats in return. 
or the threats he received. Did not bring, throw back insults in the face of those who insulted him. Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus prayed for those who killed him while on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen did the same thing. Acts 7, verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against them as he was dying for his faith in Christ. Now, let's think about your enemies for a moment. I sure hope there's none in this room. I sure hope that's not the case. But hey, it might be. Well, just think about your enemies for a moment. Those who oppose you. Those who are not on your side. Now, some of these enemies I know are imagined and some are real. But think about it anyway. Those who mistreat you, have you you asked God to change their heart? Have you asked God to change yours towards them? And what might God want to do in you through this? What change might he want to bring about in your life as a result? I've heard of a story recently of a store owner who was getting robbed, and he apprehended the robber, and the robber starts getting on his knees and begging and asking for mercy. And the store owner gave him 40 bucks and a loaf of bread and told him, don't, go, don't steal anymore. Wow. How many of us would have done that? Oh, boy. Active love and, and consistent prayer are hard work of the kingdom, right? This is the, this is the grunt work. Um, setting aside anger and resentment to do good towards others. Wow, that's, that's beyond us, isn't it? I, I have found that those who have been most negative with me, without cause in my mind at least, often when I take it as an assignment from God to love them, things change. Their attitude softens. You know, it is said that those who hurt you the most need you the most. Those who hurt you the most need you the most. See, they might not even even realize it, that they need you in their life and they're lashing out at you. What do I say? Kill them with kindness. No, we better not say that, right? Hate. How about this? How about this? Win them over with kindness. Win them over with kindness. Do something for them. Best thing you can do is pray for them. Prayer is the greatest act of love. And by the way, the love here is, is uh, you know, there's all these different uh, words in Greek for love, and you can run through all of them. Uh, we won't today, but it's, it's agape love, if you're wondering. It's agape love. Not a feeling. Not a feeling. It's a decision you make to do good to those who injure you. Agape love is the, the, the power to love those whom you don't like and who may not like you. Without feeling superior. To love them who you may not like without thinking you're going above and beyond the call of duty. Why? Look at verse 45. Jesus has said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. That doesn't mean 
so that you will turn into a child of God. You're not getting saved by any of this. Okay? Uh, it doesn't, it's not that. It, it's when you love and pray for those who hate you as a follower of Christ, as, as those who have been uh, uh, united with Christ by grace through faith, when they love and pray for those who hate them, they identify with Christ. You show your relation to God by your love for others. Think about it with me. The children of Israel were God's sons and daughters by calling. And it included this obligation to do what he wanted them to do. To do his will. Well, Jesus says in, 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 in Matthew uh, 12, 48, that anyone who does the will of, of the Father is, is his brother and sister, his relation. When a person responds to the will of God in the ministry of Jesus, he or she has God as their heavenly Father. With the requirement to act like a son or a daughter, also known as loving those whom the Father loves. That it will, it will be obvious that a pr- process of growth in Christ is going on in your life. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be what? Called, recognized, seen to be sons of God. Recognized as belonging to God. It's like permanent ID card, uh, but you don't even have to show it. They, they see it. They recognize you. The second half of this verse says that he causes his, his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Are you only going to get the sun if you're a believer? Only going to get the water you need if, if, you're, if you're in league with God? No, he... he he um, showers his, his general grace, his general blessings on, on all humankind. He's not partial in his general blessings, and, and neither should we be in doing good to all. See, verse 45, it means this, that you show yourself to be God's children because you imitate him. You do what he does. He's good to all. We ought to be good to all. Let's look at verse 46. Let's read 46 and 47 together. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Anybody can play favorites. Tax collectors and Gentiles, Jesus says, they do that. What was so bad about them? Tax collectors, publicans. They were Roman employees. They were obnoxious to the Jews. Who were, by the way, under the uneasy yoke of a foreign power. They were disliked for what they stood for. They were disliked from stealing from their own people. Extorting money from them. So they came to be hated. Ranked right up there with prostitutes. They were not on, you know, like the ten most admired people list. Someone has said this, in loving friends only, you may in a certain sense be loving only yourself. A kind of expanded selfishness. Well, you like me, so I like you. You hate me, I hate you. In loving friends only, you may be in a certain sense being loving only yourself. But to love for the right reasons, that is godly. 
It's like God. Anyone can be reciprocal. But to be generous with love when others are withholding it, oh, that is another story. Then you are identified when you exceed the world in loving. Christians should exceed the world in loving because we, we know the love of God in Jesus Christ. Verse 46 means that if you only love those who love you, there is no evidence of God in your life. There is no evidence of a higher motive. The worst per- people can do that. Everyone can do that. In verse 47, it says greet. We think of greeting as, hey, how you doing? And walk away. No, that's not what greet means here. Greet is not just saying hello. It signifies friendly relation. Ongoing friendly relation. You're going to greet your brethren only? You're going to only greet Americans? You're only going to greet Christians? Those who share your worldview? Those who share your ideology? Those who agree with you in the tight circle that you go with? Those who go with your opinions? Whoever's in your club? What did Jesus say? Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine among just your club. No. Among men, all people, all humankind, your neighbors. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not a contest to outdo someone. Just reasonable to expect those who are aligned with Jesus to reflect the true light versus artificial light. It's not something that leads to pride, but it's something that leads out of humility and thankfulness and gratefulness to God and what he has done. Put it this way. Are you... Are you sincerely willing to do for the truth what others are, are ignorantly willing to do for a lie? That's what it means to exceed the world in loving. Well, then, then you come to verse 48. We had to get here. Verse 48. So Jesus sums it up, and he says, therefore you are to be perfect, even as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. It's often been misunderstood, often been misused, used to beat people over the head with. The word for perfect here is uh, teleos. It means, it means to reach an intended or end, uh, an intended end result or completion, a goal. It's often translated mature. It does not mean without fault. It does not mean sinless. You're called to be like God, to resemble Christ, to be God-like. Think about the first disciples. Where were they first called Christians? It was in Antioch, amidst persecution. They were called Christians because they were like Christ. They were called little Christ because they reflected his nature and his glory. First Peter 4, it says, if you suffer as a Christian, there's suffering involved many times, and it's because of the name of Christ. But we're called to be like God. What's God like? Well, I'll give you one. He's love. God is love. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, we don't want to lie. We want to go with what he says. God is love. Love is the highest ideal here. We are most like God when we love, when we truly love with 
his love. See, being perfect, by the way, you know, I wouldn't probably go out the door today and say, hey, I'm perfect. How about you? You know, it's not really a cheer that, that, that flies. Uh, but, uh, what, you know, being perfect doesn't mean no, uh, doing all the right things. Doesn't mean that because you can do those for the wrong reasons. It doesn't mean not doing the wrong things. <laughs> Siblings will often say to each other, you think you're so perfect. It's all because mom and dad seem to like them better because they're being more pleasing to mom and dad. You can do the right things and get approval with the wrong heart. Perfect means growing in your relationship with God. Maturing. Those who've received the new birth spiritually in Christ grow to be like him. God is doing that work. We're not doing that work. We're cooperating with that work. Working together with him. Those who, following Je- who are following Jesus are to pursue his perfection, God's perfection. Leviticus 19.2, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And tele- teleos, by the way, ref- reflects the Hebrew word, uh, uh, tamim, which is used to describe the complete commitment of a person to God. Fully committed to God. This word, this Greek word that we're looking at in this word is used in the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, Septuagint in Deuteronomy 18, verse 13. You shall be perfect before the Lord your God. This word can be used to indicate a person who has attained spiritual maturity. But not here in verse 48. It has the Father as the goal. And it signifies disciples of Jesus pursuing the Father as the goal of their lives. It's a functional word. It's functional. For example... um, I mean, let's uh, take a, a, a real-life example. Let's say I have some wood to cut, and I buy a saw, and it cuts the wood perfectly. And I say, wow, that was perfect. It, it, it did what it was made to do. So we say, that, it worked perfectly. Okay? So the idea here is that something is perfect if it fully, if it fully realizes the purpose for which it was made, for which it was planned, for which it was designed. See, it is as we imitate the Father that we are then used for, by Him for His good purposes. And the Christian is recognized. The, the counterculture even is recognized. It's really a process of growth and cooperation with God. It's not like 2 Timothy 3 where people have a form of godliness but they deny its power. Verse 48 here means that as Christ's disciple you will live a life that reflects God's character and God's kingdom, active love, consistent prayer for enemies. That is really the the glory-filled response of gospel-changed people who are being made into the likeness of Christ by the Father through the Spirit. Jesus says, "This this is how you will be as you trust me. You will be able and willing to love beyond the limits, humanly speaking, in process, not yet complete. Go with me to Philippians 3. Paul talks about this. I, it, it, really, it really explains the situation. Philippians 3 and verse 12. He's speaking about becoming perfect. And he says this, 
Not that I've already obtained it. What? The resurrection of the dead? Of, of being conformed to his death? Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect. But I press on so I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I'm not perfect yet. I'm a work in progress. This is a process. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There you have it. Mature, growing up. And as we wrap it up here today, if you think back to just last week, we looked at verse 39 in Matthew 5, and it, it gave a command, do not resist the evil one, the one who is evil. Well, today in verse 44, there's a positive instruction, love your enemies. The first calls us to avoid retaliation. The second calls us to engage in active love toward the one that we want to retaliate against. Augustine said that many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. So we need to understand something about Jesus and what he was and is about. John Stott points this out in his book, The Message of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says that one word sums up everything that Jesus has said so far in Matthew chapter 5. One word. The chapter hinges on it. What makes the follower of Jesus different? What makes the follower of Jesus influential? What makes the follower of Jesus have a righteousness, Matthew 5.20, that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees? What is it? It's in verse 47. It's, it's hidden like buried treasure there, by the way. If you greet only your brothers, what more than they are you doing than others? It's that, it's that little word, more than. More than. What do you do more than others? Uh, the Greek word parisos. What, what, what more than means is abundant. Actually, it means above the greatest abundance. Actually, it means super abundant. It means over and above the norm. It means a lot more than. It means excellent. It means extraordinary. What are you doing that's extraordinary? What's that? If you're just going to love those who love you, what, what, what extraordinary thing is there about your life? The difference between, between God's people is that God has done something extraordinary in them to change them, a different change of heart. Uh, God dwells within them. He has canceled out the debt they owe due to sin. He's replaced it with an inheritance that is imperishable and, and will not fade away. And, and they, then they walk in obedience. Then they walk in humility. Then they walk loving God and following him and trusting him and allowing him to do and reorient their lives to true reality and do what he wants to do in their life. See, when we have received mercy, we are enabled to be merciful and love even those who hate us. It's only when we have experienced the grace of God in Christ that we can express this kind of love. Just three months ago, there was a pastor killed on a Sunday morning at his church. Fred Winters, pastor of First Baptist Church of Maryville, Illinois, was shot and killed during a Sunday service March 8th this year. 
A week after that happened, his wife, Cindy, she was interviewed on a TV show and she was asked about her, her husband's killer. Here's what she said. I do not have any hatred or even hard feelings toward him. We have been praying for him. One of the first things that my daughter said to me after this happened was, you know, I hope that he comes to learn to love Jesus through all of this. We are not angry at all. And we really firmly believe that he can find hope and forgiveness and peace through this by coming to know Jesus. And we hope that that happens for him. See, the extraordinary thing, the extraordinary thing, as Bonhoeffer put it, was this. It is the love of Jesus Christ himself who went patiently and obediently to the cross. The cross is the differential. Christ took judgment in our place so that we might receive his mercy and grace. Christ took judgment for us. And Stott said it this way, the way Jesus put it was to say that this super love is not the love of men, but the love of God, which in common grace gives sun and rain to the wicked. Jesus does expect of his followers the very things which others think cannot reasonably be expected of anyone. See, we are able to love because God first loved us. We are then to pursue love. And as we pursue love, we then dwell in love. As we dwell in love, the love of God produces the fruit of love in us. Matthew 19, 26, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Because what God calls us to do, he enables us to do by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you once again for how good you are, how great you are. Lord, we know that what is being called for here is Holy Spirit-inspired and Holy Spirit-empowered living, resting in your finished work on the cross, trusting you for the strength to do the impossible, and focusing on Jesus, not the thing we think we need to do to be a good Christian, but just focusing on you and we know that you will do in and through us what we can never do alone and we thank you and we praise you in jesus name